Let me invite you to stand for our scripture reading. It's from Isaiah 63, and so we've been in Isaiah 63 for a while. We're coming down to the end of it. I'm going to read all of Isaiah 63 and my goal. I do have a goal, believe it or not. The goal would be for your head to explode. That You know that head exploding emoji where it's like half of your forehead? I actually have a five head. But, but you know, the head is divided and then it kind of has the atom bomb smoke going up. That's really what this passage does for us because it joins together a picture, a full picture of who God is, that he is indeed wrathful, vengeful, but he's incredible, lo- incredibly loving at the same time. And so that's what the scripture portrays for us here in Isaiah 63. So here from God's word, I'll read chapter 63 of Isaiah. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble like livestock that go down into the valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, so you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you 
are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer. From of old is your name, O Lord. Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return. For the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask indeed that you would give us wisdom and the Holy Spirit's guidance. That you would lead us in all truth, that you would transform us, that this was, wouldn't be an exercise in growing intellectually, but would be an exercise in heart knowledge and our relationship with you. And we pray that would happen in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, experience has taught me there's only three kinds of people in life. There are only three kinds of people in life. Yes, I'm stereotyping, and this will be maybe the least offensive thing that I say this morning, so you can look forward to that. Three kinds of people, those who like vanilla, those who like chocolate, and to be inclusive this morning, those who like swirl. So I know who I'm talking to here, vanilla people. Identify yourself. Raise your hand. Vanilla people. All right. I happen to be a vanilla person. Chocolate people. All right. And what about swirl? Well, the swirl people, you know this, and I happen to be married to a swirl person. Uh, they will speak about, if you haven't heard, just ask them later this morning, they will speak about the benefits of the swirl, how it brings together the goodness of the vanilla and the goodness of the chocolate in one. And I bring that up this morning, not to make you hungry, but to tell you, in this passage in Isaiah 63, you have this combination of a vengeful, wrathful God of judgment, vanilla, if you will, with steadfast, wonderful love. We read at the end of verse 9, he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. We've got the chocolate, and it swirls together in a beautiful vision of who God is, and it's a vision you won't get in the evangelical church today. You won't. You won't. Why, why am I saying that? Did you notice God is pictured as a blood-spattered warrior? People can't handle that. I hope you can handle it, because that's what you're going to get this morning. You're getting the truth here that God indeed is vengeful and wrathful, but at the same time, not opposed, at the same time, He is loving and patient with His people. And it's both together this morning that makes us see and recognize the greatness of who God is. It's what motivates us to worship and we can recall, of course, one of the first heretics in the church, Marcion, 125 AD, give you a little church history lesson. And what did Marcion say? He said, there is a God 
And he's talked about in the Old Testament, and he is full of wrath and vengeance and judgment. There's a God of judgment there in the Old Testament, and there's a God of love in the New Testament. That's what Marcion's heresy said. And let me tell you, it's alive and well today in the church, isn't it? That we don't seem to really put these two together. That God is indeed vengeful, wrathful. I'll give you lots of reasons to hope because he's pictured as a warrior here. But at the same time, in a perfect expression of who God is, he is loving towards his people. And we really need both of those at the same time to see and to recognize the greatness of the gospel. If you only have one side of that equation, then the gospel isn't really good news. If you only have one side of that equation, then you don't experience the full measure of the love of God. And if you don't have a God of judgment, then there really is not hope in this world. And so we'll look at both together. We'll look at both together as they are in this passage that you would see the greatness and glory of who God is. So first, God the warrior. This is in the first six verses of this passage. And man, it is, I, I would say it's PG, but PG is like now G, right? But there's, he's blood spattered. Look in verse 1, crimson garments. He comes from Edom because that's traditionally the land of Esau, right? And there is constant friction between Edom and Israel. And so God is coming from this area, having defeated his enemies. And notice this, at the end of verse 1, he's marching in the greatness of his strength. So he isn't tired. He's not weakened from this exertion of warfare. And Isaiah asks there in verse 2, why is your apparel red? Your garment's like the one who treads in the wine press. It's a graphic image. It's a graphic image, but it's one here in the Bible. Verse 3, God has trodden the wine press alone. Look down at the end of verse 3. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Wow. He is coming from warfare, having defeated his enemies. And we remember that warfare in the ancient world, it wasn't pushing a button and a missile goes, you know, hundreds of miles away. It was a up-close and personal, gritty business. And he is spattered with the blood of his enemies. And we're told why here in verse 4, for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. And of course, we know that God is justified to judge because if you've traveled with us through Isaiah, you see the portrayal again and again of the sin of Israel and all they did to offend uh, God and not live into his perfect standard. They have trusted others. They have worshiped idols. And so God has now come to judge. And we see in verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. In other words, God is saying he alone is the judge. Now, that's important news if you live in Bernie, Texas, because we like to think we're the judge, right? Oh, let me tell you. We like to exercise our sense of judgment and how things ought to be. 
but we see that God ultimately does this, and so there's good news for us in that we don't have to judge because God judges a lot better than we do. He is singular in power and ability to judge. We see that in verse 5, and then we see it as well at the end of verse 1. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. This is the God that we worship. And it's good news for us because he is able. He is able to save because he's able to judge. He is a vital warrior. And sometimes you and I get in situations in our life where we need God to do the fighting for us, to do the judging for us. You know, we used to live in a house where the community mailbox, you know, the community mailbox where they, they always are putting someone else's mail in your box. That community mailbox was at the end of the street. So if, if this is the street here, our house was down at the end of the block on the left. And occasionally I'd go with my boys and we'd go check the mail. And of course, one time I decided we're going to race home. Now, I do want to tell you this was a fair race. It wasn't like I usually race my boys where I call out, let's race home, and I'm 10 yards already head start. That's a little tip if you're slower as a parent. You want to race your kids this way. But I thought on this one, we're, we're going to have a fair race. So we all sort of towed the line, a, a, a seam there at the end of the street, a seam in the concrete, and we all sort of lined up, and we're going to race to our house. And I said, uh, ready, set, go, and we all take off. I lost that race. <laughs> it was the first time. I mean, I'm over, I was at the time over 40, and it was the first time my kids had beat me running. I was appalled. But I had clearly, as I reflected on this important moment in my life where I'd been outrun by a couple of my kids, I thought, man, I've lost a step. And with the margin of victory that they had, I actually probably had lost a few steps. And sometimes when we think about our own experience in life and getting older, because that just happens by itself, doesn't it? We all are getting older. And we think about God is eternal. He's the God of the ages. And somehow in our minds we assign the fact that God is old is that he is somehow less capable, less able to save us. And we picture God as it were, and I know it's in violation of the second commandment but and the third commandment, but how God is pictured in sort of general culture is that he is an old man with a big beard and maybe hunched over and he's got a cane too. And this is clearly in opposition to the biblical truth, is it not? I mean, what we read here is that he is a mighty warrior who is marching in the greatness of his strength. That's at the end of verse 1. He hasn't lost a step. His ability 
to save and to judge has not diminished just because he's an eternal God. Now, let me tell you why that's good news. Well, it's good news if you're suffering an injustice. If you're suffering an injustice, someone has sinned against you or, or maybe sinned against a loved one, and you think about what you really need, you need a God who is powerful to work justice. And that's what we have here in Isaiah 63. It's good news that God is a warrior if you suffer injustice, but it's also good news if you need help. If you need help, you want someone coming for you that can rescue you and help you powerfully. And that's what we have here in Isaiah 63. We have a God who can do something to save us and to right wrongs. And if you're weak, it's good news. You have a God who is strong and mighty. He alone can bring salvation. And so when we see sort of modern evangelical Christianity or liberal Christianity reasoning out this powerful warrior God, then our hope goes with it because we don't need a weak God who's old and, like me, has lost a few steps. We need the God who's coming from battle, blood-spattered, believe it or not, who is able to give us the justice that we long for and the help that we need and the protection that we need. So God is a warrior. Is your mind blown yet? Well, hang on, because... God is also our Redeemer. Here comes the love. You see, it's not held in balance. It's both together perfectly. And so God, the Redeemer, what does Isaiah do in light of this mighty warrior that God is? And, and we see at the end of verse 6, he's trampled down the peoples in his anger, made them drunk in his wrath, poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And that is a warning. You're either going to meet God as judge, or you're going to meet him as redeemer. And what does Isaiah do in light of this powerful warrior God? Look in verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord. It moves him to worship. To see God like this moves him to recognize God's power and to worship him and to remember, to recount. The great love that God has for Isaiah that is clearly not due to him by his own righteousness, by his own deeds. When we see God as the warrior, we can think to ourselves, you know, I deserve him to have warfare against me as a sinner. That's what's due to me, his wrath. But instead, if your life is hidden in Christ, you too can recount God's wonderful, steadfast love that he has had on us. And we see that love come across, verse 7, the great goodness to the house of Israel. Isaiah's remembering God's grace, his mercy, his compassion. There in verse 7, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Notice there, it's not according to his performance according to Isaiah's righteousness. No, it's according to the abundance 
of God's steadfast love. And so God has in mind to redeem His people, to make them into what they are currently displaying they are not. And we see in verse 9, in all their affliction, He was afflicted. And so we see God sympathizing here with the plight of His people. In a reference here to the Exodus, which we get into in the context later in the next few verses, but the angel of his presence saved them. It's a reference to the 10th plague. The angel of death that came that struck down the firstborn for those who didn't have blood on their door. The angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them, pity in his mercy. God has redeemed them. And then look at this. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. It's an image for how God brought his people along in the exodus. And you know, if you're a parent and your kid falls down or gets hurt, what do you do? You scoop them up. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Or if you got a dog that gets hurt, you scoop up your dog. You do. I don't. My dog's too heavy. But you scoop up And this is the image that God has for us to know his steadfast love. You see, the horror of sin and God's judgment is seen up against his mercy and love, and it's meant to get our attention. It's meant to blow our minds at how God has had this wonderful, steadfast love for us. Maybe you're someone who's hurting today and You need to be lifted up. Maybe you need to be carried. And God will do that in his compassion and his love, mercy, and pity for us. But notice here. Oh, this is the bad news. Look in verse 10. But they rebelled. Oh, does that not tell you about their character? And honestly, our character? That even in this great display of God's judging power and his great display of his wonderful, steadfast love, what did they do? They rebelled, verse 10, grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. This is a very confronted passage, is it not? You're either going to know him as judge or you'll know him as your redeemer. And we're told in verse 11, as we move now, so you've seen the vanilla, as it were, God the warrior, you've seen the chocolate, God the redeemer, and now it comes together as God the covenant keeper, the perfect expression of him in his judgment and in his love is how he keeps his promises. And so verse 11, then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people, So remembering that Mosaic covenant, that relationship that God established through his whatever-it-takes promises, he remembers that. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean God's forgetful? No, but what it means is he acts consistent with and based on his covenant promises rather than the behavior, the sinful behavior of his people. And so what did God do? Well, 
Verse 11 recounts the exodus and wilderness wanderings. Verse 12 does the same thing, seeing in how God provided for them and took care of his people and his power as evidence of his steadfast love and his powerful wrath. And we see verse 13, like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble because the desert's flat. I'm not a horse person, but I know some of you are out there. It's probably pretty easy to ride through a desert. There's no obstacles there. God led his people in that way. And then verse 14, like livestock that go down into the valley. The valley is the fertile area, and that's where he leads them that they would be fed and taken care of and satisfied. And what does this lead Isaiah to? It leads to a prayer and this is in verse 15 and 19, and this is a way we can apply it too. It leads to a prayer of repentance. And we see in verse 15, look down from heaven and see. So this is Isaiah's prayer of repentance based on who God really is. And Isaiah begins at that place of humility, look down. And it breaks through our pride, our ability. We think we're such all that. We think we're great judges. But what does Isaiah do? He says, you have to look down from heaven and see us because we are so low. He remembers his position before a mighty God. And he says in verse 16, for you are our father. Now notice here in verse 16. How far have they fallen? Abraham does not know us. Israel does not acknowledge us. And that's the good news of the gospel right here in the Old Testament. It's the good news of the gospel because even though we have sinned, God through Christ is still our Father and He is our Redeemer. You, O Lord, are our Father, verse 16, our Redeemer from of old is your name. And then in verse 17, we might read this initially and think this is blaming God for someone's sin, but actually what it is, it's, it's a calling out, seeing the senselessness of sin and asking God to intercede and do something. Verse 17, O Lord, why do you make us wonder from your ways? It's Casting ourselves, understanding the problem of sin and casting ourselves on the one who can actually change it. Verse 17, and harden our heart. You hear the language of the Exodus there with Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Harden our hearts so that we fear you not. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. And so it's a bringing to God, asking God, and this is true of verses 18 and 19, asking God to look on the situation and calling on Him in weakness to change things. Have you ever, you ever hear a sermon where a pastor has like a $100 bill and he says, I'm going to give this $100 bill? Okay, this is not that sermon. <laughs> this is a $10 bill. We've been impacted by inflation. So it's a $10 bill. And I want to tell you, we agree on something, <clears throat> most of us do at least, that this is worth, how much, how much is this worth? $10, right? I know inflation and well, it's not really backed up by anything. But yeah, let's just, for simplicity's sake, 
it's worth $10. That's the value, $10. Now, what if I do this? What if I do this? How much is it worth now? What if I do this? I kind of take it and I... How much is it worth now? If you have a newer bill, I'd like to change this. <laughs> it's still worth $10, isn't it? Still worth $10. And in fact, did you know the, if you like to bury your money or burn it or anything like that, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing has a mutilated currency division. And if 50% of the bill is visible for what the value is, you can send it to them and they will exchange it. You found that out here. But I want to tell you, my, my $10 bill, although it's been through a lot, still worth $10. And you know, in your life, you may feel, certainly, that you've been crumpled up a little bit. You may feel like you've been stomped on, crushed by life, but you have value to God. How do I know that? Well, because God has orchestrated two great events, two great redemptions, if you will. The first one, we, we've kind of talked about the first one, that was the exodus, right? Delivery from slavery in Egypt and brought into the promised land. But that, that's the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, you have another great deliverance that happens, a great deliverance that happens that puts together God's judgment and his love in one moment in history. You know, it's at the cross. At the cross, we see perfectly God's wrath, his warrior self come together with his love. Jesus experiences the full measure of God's wrath, so we didn't have to. And it is there that the wrath of God and the love of God meet at the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. And the great trouble that we're in, back to my bill here, the great trouble we're in as a society is we don't communicate with people that they matter anymore. Or we communicate that they matter but then we take away the means for knowing the value that people have. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, if, if people are really important and they have value, why do we have abortion? If people really have value because they're created by God and in His image, why do we believe the universe came into existence by an accident, by a cosmic accident? You see... Really, if we want to see things improve in our society, we want to see the mental health crisis addressed, people have to know that they matter beyond what they can do, beyond their performance, beyond perfectionism. And how that happens is the very thing our society has taken away. 
to know that we are created in God's image and we have a purpose to give glory to Him gives us all value, and yet that's taken away if we believe the universe is a cosmic accident. And then if we don't believe that God has His hand on us, even in the womb, as Psalm 103 tells us, then our very value is taken away. But what God instead communicates there at the cross is the value that we have as His people. He expresses His wrath towards sin, and He expresses His love for His people. And we're told about that coming together. We saw that in Isaiah 53. By His wounds, we are healed. So I hope it's been mind-blowing as we've looked at the truth and the reality of who God is. Yes, a blood-spattered warrior. And you know, there's a lot of hope in that because sometimes you need someone, I need someone to be fighting for us. But as well, I hope you've seen the tremendous love that even though, verse 10, they rebelled, and even though we rebel, what's true about us? You are our Father. He is our Redeemer. And we see the warrior God and the Redeemer God come beautifully together in His covenant promises and covenant keeping as exemplified especially at the cross. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank You for revealing who You are to us. And we pray that this would give us tremendous hope that we know and understand that we have a God who can act on our behalf. And we have a God who has shown us tremendous love there at the cross. And so we pray that we would leave this place mind-blown, heart-transformed, ready to follow you. We thank you that even though life has perhaps crumpled us up, that we matter to you, that we have value to you, value enough for you to send your Son for us. We thank you for your steadfast love. May we know that love greater and deeper each day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.